1: Well, I hate to be the one to break it to you folks, but summer is over. It's time to get serious again, and what better way to do that than to spend an hour in the company of one of the finest investors of his generation. Joining me this week as co-host, Kyle Bass. Welcome to Season 2 of Adventures in Finance. Today is September 7th, 2017, and welcome to Episode 32 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, I have a rather strange looking gentleman, producer James. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm feeling all right. I don't know why I'm strange. You enjoyed the summer break? Yeah, it was good. Uh, for, for those of you out there who didn't get a chance to listen in on uh, our summer series, I would heartily recommend that you go back and give them a listen. We had some absolutely phenomenal conversations with the likes of Dr. Pepper Malmgren, Jawad Mian. Uh, Steve Diggle and Mark Yusko talking about some of the things they do away from the world of finance and uh, we really did end up having some of the most engaging conversations I think we have ever had in a- Adventures in Finance but that was then and this is now and we're back with a new season and joining me this week as co-host is Carl Bass Carl, welcome, thanks so much for doing this it's, uh, it's fun to have uh, a co-host alongside me to make sure I don't screw up
0: <laughs> okay, great
1: um, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, you and I haven't, I, I think the last time we saw each other, the very last time I saw you, you were trying to pull a hook and a fish out of your nephew's finger at your, uh, that's, at your that's exactly
0: right. <laughs> that is exactly right. I um, have a, I have a great video of that. If you remember.
1: Oh, you did. Yeah. That's right. I mean, the, for, poor guy, he, he was a lot tougher than I would have been if I'd had a hook and a fish flapping around <laughs> on my finger. Poor little guy. I presume yes. he, I you made a full recovery though. He made a full recovery. Fantastic. Um, so look, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that uh, I'd love you and I to talk about uh, today. And, and the first one of those is something that I want to talk to you about, um, which is uh, a defining moment in your life. And I'm always fascinated by these when I, when I talk to people to find out, you know, what makes them tick and, and things that have happened to them that have kind of shaped the way, uh, the way they've turned out to be. And, and some of them are uh, career-related and some of them are, you know, dropping the catch in the high school championship game. And it's really interesting when you hear the things that have happened to people's lives that that really kind of marked a turning point for them. And so I wanted to kind of talk to you about what that might be, whether it is a business one, whether it is uh, you know a, a pre-career one or a college one. When I mean, when, when you talk about that, what kind of springs to mind?
0: You know, so I'll say, you know, a lot of the questions you ask, um, whether it's a defining moment or You know, I've heard in prior in prior podcasts whether it's a movie or a book, or it's so hard to um, kind of distill it down into into kind of single moments in time. But I'll I'll attempt to do so. Two things come to mind on defining moments, and they were they were kind of in in two different uh, uh, time periods in my life. Um, And one is career related, and one actually is 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 kind of education. Slash career related. So the very first one was, you know, look, the, and it kind of ties my whole life together uh, as, as I got into college. But from my, from, I grew up in a, in a great family uh, with, I have a, I have a sister three years younger than I, and I had a, I had a great uh, mother and father. My mom, uh, didn't, didn't work. She dedicated her life to the betterment of her children, and, and which is a, a job in itself. And my, my dad, <laughs> he to uh, that. my, my dad was kind of in hotel management, and so we grew up, call it uh, lower middle class. and And I and I give you this background because what's what's important is as I got to a point my um, my sophomore year of college where I had I had always worked my whole life. My parents had never saved any money, uh, and they had never saved any for me for for school. So from the day I was from the day I was thirteen. Uh, on. I mowed yards in the summer. I had a summer job starting uh, in a seasonal job at a water park starting when I was 14. And I've worked every day of my life since I was 13 and trying to save. And so one of the defining moments in my life was that realizing that, um, again, you have influences that you have, you have things in your life that influence you. Some of them are positive influences and some of them are actually negative influences. And the negative influences tend to push me harder uh, and, and one of the key influencers in my life was the fact that, that we never had enough capital to do the things that other people were doing. And what I mean by that is like, let's say go out to dinner, uh, a couple of nights a week, or, you know, again, I'm not saying achieve material success or anything like that. I'm just saying like, live, live a life, live the life that that you want to live and in its basic terms. And so I started working, when I was, when I was young and I swore I was going to save and I saved nonstop. And I got to this point where I got into uh, Texas Christian university. I got a scholarship for springboard diving and for, uh, and for academics, uh, because I worked hard in school. And, um, when I was in college one day, you know, I was paying my way through college. I was a division one scholarship athlete in theory, you couldn't have a job as a division one athlete because of the pay to play problems with football. But I had every odd job I could find, but I could never um, earn enough to pay for my books, my food, and all of these things at school. And one day, I literally was trying to scrape change together to eat. (laughs) And I said, this will never happen to me another day in my (laughs) life. And so that, that was a moment where I felt like, I had uh, I had gotten myself into a situation where I was spending more than I could earn, and that was partially because or primarily because I was I was pushing through an education. Uh, But that that inspired me, and 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 therefore I always said that from the day I graduate college, I'm going to save at least fifty cents of every dollar I'll I'll ever earn, and I've done that. Uh, And so, from a perspective of seeing how. My parents, who had a great fam, we had a great family, but they had their own shortcomings, and those shortcomings really drove me um, to save. Um, and so, that was a real defining moment in my life, uh, my my sophomore year in college. And then, and then, my second answer to your, to your question is, as I got into investing uh, and got out of college, um, I was covering event driven uh, accounts on the sell side uh, for special situations. And I was working with some of the, some of the world's best short sellers early on. And, um, the, one of the, the very first, uh, position I ever took with the people I was advising and myself, uh, based upon kind of in-depth research was, um, I, I I put a short position on a company. If you remember when the East, East and West Germany, of course, uh, came together and a lot of the, a lot of the East German uh, companies were being subsidized by the East German government, and yet they kind of moved their way into the Western capital markets, and some of them went public. And there was a shipping company uh, called Brimmer Vulcan, and it was based in East Germany. And it was, it was um, uh, basically, if you look through the numbers, the executives were all uh, taking the, taking all of the revenue and a lot of the subsidies and they were buying yachts and planes and cars <laughs> and they were just basically embezzling from the company and so the worst thing that ever happened to me in investing was the first stock that I ever shorted uh, went from you this made was a back killing. when they were yeah this was yeah. back when they were D marks and not euros it went from a hundred to 80 to 60 to 40 to 20 to 0 it never went up uh, <laughs> it just fell apart which which by the way is is the worst thing that can happen Absolutely to someone, I
1: couldn't agree with uh, you
0: <laughs> when they're young and they think they're super smart and they've done a lot of work and they say you know what this is just easy yeah. and um, that a uh, and again this kind of ties back into uh, my 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 Concept of wanting to save and grow and um, set goals for myself, and I had set financial goals for myself right out of school, and I was wanting to conquer the world and and um, conquer Wall Street, and it was just this this beautiful, amazing, complex jungle uh, that you that you could navigate through. And and so the very first time uh, I shorted something, it went from a hundred marks to zero in a straight line, uh, and the the next position I took. So I earned, I earned a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, in taking that position and it was a hundred percent of my account and I had dedicated all my effort and time to it. Um, and, uh, (laughs) and so then the next, the next position I took, uh, was in, I had, uh, we had worked with a bunch of accountants and combed through, um, as many as many balance sheets and income statements as we could, and we found this company called Radisys. Radisys was an embedded chip company uh, at the time, and it was, uh, if you remember back during, call it, 1996, 1997, uh, that's when we had the, the four horsemen of the market. It's very Absolutely, similar to the, yeah. to, the fang, to the FANG stocks today. Uh, but you had Intel, Microsoft, um, Dell, and I can't remember the fourth Cisco, one. Right? Was it were, Cisco and Yeah, so you're probably right. Yeah. Cisco, uh, and so uh, I had found Radisys, and we started we started looking at at their kind of their deferred revenue. We started looking at their um, everything they were doing, and their their income statement didn't add up. And their chief operating officer had just resigned for quote personal reasons. <laughs> and I I just made it made it a my mission to track him down. And I I finally tracked him down at his lake house in somewhere in the Midwest. And I said, you know, I just want to ask you a few questions about, you know, your income statement and, you know, and why you resigned, because you know, we're trying to put two and two together and and I can't seem to do it. And he said, you know, he said, I left that company because the CEO asked me to zero out some cost of goods sold line items so that we could stay within our debt covenants. And I wasn't willing uh, to break my kind of ethical, that ethical barrier and, and legal barrier. And and I said, oh, my goodness, yeah. you know, here, here we've got them. And so I said, you know, have you spoken with the authorities? And he says, you know, I haven't yet. And I said, well, you need to call the SEC. You need to tell them exactly what you just told me and you need to do it right away, you know? And so then, you know, we work in this world of, of imperfect information, but for those people that want to dig and, and do, do a lot of the work, uh, and get, get to a place, uh, uh, you know, where, where you, you end up getting as much information as you can and acting on it. So this is one in which, how, how do you think I, I executed this? Well, I just had Mermaid Volcan, and so I went into Radasis with a hundred percent short position, yeah. and um, all the money I had saved up, and because I thought I had this one locked down. Well, this was back when there were—well, um, I guess there still are—but uh, there were there were newsletter writers uh, that were very influential in kind of the the tech craze. And if you remember, there were the momentum players, and there were the mutual funds. They didn't care about valuation they just bought momentum uh, and so one of the we had fully positioned ourselves here myself and all of my customers and, and clients that I was advising and uh, a letter writer uh, named Carlton Lutz who wrote the technology market letter of the day uh, dubbed Radisys the son of Intel oh, and boy. oh boy uh, the the stock went promptly from about $16 a share to 40. So it literally, I, I got margin called out all the way up until I was completely wiped out. I lost all of my money. And um, I was apoplectic. And yeah, I, I, thought, I thought the world was going mad. And some of my well healed clients, you know, actually shorted more. Uh, you know, the people that I was covering that were fund driven and, and of course the people that didn't have a hundred percent of their net worth shorted on day one, (laughs) the smart guys, you mean the smarter, the smarter people. (laughs) But you know, I, I remember that like it was yesterday and that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me was losing all of my money on something that I thought I, something where I knew I was right. Um, and um, so when you think about the defining moments, you know, one was more life driven, one was more investing driven. But from an investing perspective, getting completely wiped out uh, when it was so near and dear to me, yeah. um, and, and thinking that it was the end of the world and that, that I was an abject failure and that, that, this, that this investing thing wasn't for me at the time. I just remember the, the, the self pity. Uh, that was going on and and kind of the and and looking back at it, uh, it couldn't have happened at a better time in my life. That's you want that to happen as early in your career as you right. can, and you want it to be the most devastating blow that could possibly hit you to teach you uh, to to basically bring humility into your investing and also teach you that, you should never set yourself up for the knockout punch. Yeah. You should never put a hundred percent of of your net worth, literally, in anything. Yeah, uh, so and true. and so it actually teaches you a lot about sizing. It te- teaches you a lot about risk management. It teaches you a lot about life. Uh, that no matter no matter how no matter how much you think you have your arms around a situation, you just never do. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I listened to all that. It's fascinating. As I said to you, you know, I love hearing these stories that, that kind of shape people. And when you're know, going back to, to your college days, you know, th- there you are working really hard, that that drive to save, you know, where does that come from? Because it, it's kind of something, uh, to, you, to your point about you just wanted the things that, that you felt other families had and you guys didn't. Um, but But that's that's a discipline that normally gets instilled in people rather than something they come to on their own. You know what I mean? Did that come Uh, from anyone like a
0: grandparent that was a saver or? No, no, it just, you know, I think also, you know, going, I attended a school uh, I think where my, where all of my, um, yeah, I, I was just in an area where most people were call it, the center of middle class to upper middle class, you know, there, there really wasn't uh, anyone in the, in the, in the upper class where I grew up. I went to a public school, um, in Texas and I was just wanting, uh, to, to, to be again, like everyone else where, you know, we had neighbors that could go out to dinner whenever they wanted to. And I thought that was uh, the greatest thing ever. Uh, and you know, we would go out to dinner maybe once a month. (laughs) And so, uh, Uh, You know, I think it's, again, when I think about my life, there are positive forces and negative forces. The negative forces have acted on me um, so much more uh, as far as driving me into places um, or driving me to think, driving me to act in different ways. Now, you know, the love that my mom bestowed upon me she definitely taught me how to love. And so that's a very positive thing, right? Um, but I think on the, on the negative side of things, you know, both of my parents smoked, for right. example.
1: Yeah, as did mine. Yeah. Dad, if you listen, stop.
0: Right. And both of my parents are gone and my mom's gone because she smoked. And my, my dad probably ended up getting cancer. Uh, you know, he had throat cancer, which could be a variant of smoking. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, um, because they smoked, I haven't smoked a thing or done a drug in my entire life. And I never will. Uh, it just, it drove me away. Now, did I drink alcohol in college? You bet I did. Um, do I love a, a glass of whiskey every now and then? Of course I do, but, um, I will never smoke anything because it was so repulsive to me, uh, that, that it, I, it just drove me away from it. So anyway, it's just kind of when you think about the construct of my psyche, uh, those kinds of things pushed me, push me pretty hard.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I remember that exactly the same in my childhood, rolling around in the back of a, you know, a car in the 70s with the windows up and my mom smoking yes. cigarettes. You know? And, and yet, yes. to your point, it had exactly the same effect on me. I, I, I've never even picked up a lit cigarette, nor would I. It just it brings back that, the memories of those smells, and it's like, oh, my God, this is an awful thing. It's it's yeah. so funny, but, you know. This talking about this stuff, and you know, the one thing that I see that runs through every single thing I ever see you present or, or write or put out there, this this attention to detail, this no stone unturned research. You know, your, your your Rational Investors Paradox to me is still one of the finest pieces of research I've ever seen because it was it, I couldn't find any way around it, um, mm. and, and everything you put out. This, this comes shining through in that. And so when you talk about the lengths you go to, the due diligence you do to, to really thoroughly research something, uh, only to find out in, in the case of Radicis that you can be right and you can sit and talk to this guy who says, yep, there's been you know, some kind of malfeasance there and still be wrong and still lose money. I mean, that's such yeah. a powerful lesson
0: yeah and, and and it happened it happened immediately after that if you go look up this uh, this case uh, where there was a company you know Cadence design was a place and route software company there was a company called Avanti that was started by a couple of former Cadence design employees and this was another case where the CEO Jerry sue uh, was someone that was just violently competitive and wanted to launch a company to compete against Cadence so what did he do? he and his cohorts literally stole the place and route software and they downloaded it onto their, uh, onto their hard drives and left. And there was evidence of this download happening. There was evidence of payments going from cadence employees to, or Avanti employees to cadence employees. And the funny thing is, is the cadence employees even put typos in the place and route code so that if anyone ever stole it, it would evidence that it was stolen. And The Santa Clara County D.A., this guy named Julius Finkelstein, had this had these guys cold, absolutely cold. And it took seven years for this stock to finally get obliterated. And again, you have it. You have the court case. You have the evidence. You have all of the players. And yet it just doesn't happen long, you know, in in the time frame in which you need it to. So anyway, it's just those are big lessons. But. Some of those lessons are hard to learn, too, because as we as we sit here today, we've dedicated I've dedicated the last three years of my life to st- to understanding China's credit system. Yeah. And I, I would say we we understand it as well as anyone in the world does. Uh, and it's the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the history of financial markets. Forty trillion dollars worth of assets in a system with two trillion of equity. Yeah. And, and like if we sit here and we see this. And yet, you know, we wrote our magnum opus on this in February of 2016, and here we are in September of 2017, and it continues to grow.
1: Yeah, well, and you, so, you, you and I have spoken about this before, yeah, and this idea that because something hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. I, I, oh, yeah. I'm always astounded because, you know, you, 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 you put that thesis out there. And again, as I said, like all your work, it, it's so brilliantly constructed and, and the, the answer to something like that, which is very thoughtful, very methodical to walk you through your case is that like, this is, we think this, 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 here are all the steps along the way. And the mm-hmm. answer is, well, that didn't happen. You're an idiot. You know what I mean? Right. It's, well, it, it's, it's, it it's, didn't, it
0: didn't happen in the last 12 months. Exactly. Therefore right. You must, be, therefore you must be wrong.
1: Exactly. right. So how, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that attitude? I mean, I guess you don't have to, but it must, if nothing else, it must get frustrating
0: you do you know you 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 run into the people that you know look people so want for everything to be okay yeah. right no nobody want in their right mind wants this wants us to be right because if i'm right that means we're going to see a global growth slowdown that means that again you think about the concentric circles of how it affects each participant you think okay well i'm not going to earn as much money as i earned last year uh, i'm going to have to cut spending or i might lose my job or the the economy may really slow down and might have we might have uh, additional problems. So therefore, that thesis just isn't right. And I'd rather just keep investing the way I am and hope everything works out. And that's kind of ninety five percent of the population, right? There's yeah. only five percent of the population that really I think thinks deeply about things like this. Um, and and then then they wait for kind of the signs of seeing the whites of their eyes before they decide mm-hmm. to position themselves. Um, so. I just I just think that it's also a blessing and a curse, Grant, uh, because a curse, meaning you end up swimming upstream for a long period of time, inevitably before things, um, you know, before the anomaly ends up showing itself. And so I think that that, um, yeah, it's it's it. it, there are periods of time in which work is fun because you're vindicated yeah, uh, with your, on your, on your ideology or your research. And then there are periods of time in which it just isn't that much fun because, um, you, you don't see the fruits of your labor, um, annually. And I think we all live in a, in a society today where, where we need more instant gratification and instant for me is a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Uh, that delayed,
1: self-delayed <laughs> gratification.
0: Yeah. and, but also as as I get older, uh, and hopefully wiser, um, I see the way that 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 true fortunes are built uh, and and legacies are built. Really, uh, is in is in the creation of capital and the creation of ideas and human ingenuity. And I love being long. Human ingenuity and 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 short financial innovation and you know those are those yeah. are the kinds of things that as a, as a as a basic life ideology uh, is something that should be followed right. You should have the majority of your capital uh, investing in innovative ideas uh, and 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 maybe a small subset of your capital uh, figuring out how to be short financial innovation for for when things kind of uh, inevitably. Um, restructure.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you could have put that trade on for the last two hundred years, I mean, that's that's ah. been the greatest bet you could have made, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. E- exactly. Y- right. You talk about this stuff when you when you talk about work not being fun, and I, I I've talked before about this, but this idea from outside the industry that this is all about the money, right? That finance is all about the money, and trading and investing is all about the money, and and you know, I know when when you sit down and you, and you come up with one of these theses and, and you do all the work, it's never about it's never about making money. It's about f- being proven right. It's about That's it. that day when it comes and you said, you know what? I told you. I told you. You didn't believe me. We did all the work. All the rest follows. You know, whether you make money, you, know, you get rich, all that stuff. It's about putting this beautiful complex puzzle that you described together, figuring it out in a way that not many other people do, sticking to your guns, and finally getting that vindication. It's an extraordinary thing.
0: Yes. We just we just need vindication uh, more often.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Like, yes. uh, yeah. Like that, like yeah. That, like that first trade in Brim of Vulcan. But but what about um, you know when you when you when you go through this stuff, and, and I was taken by your uh, when you very kindly interviewed John Burbank for us, uh, and you sat down and the very first question you asked him right out of the gate was, you know, John, how do you size your positions? Because that's 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 the tricky part. You know, all the work, all the research. You can get this cold case and get it nailed on. How do you size it so you can keep being wrong until you're right?
0: That's it's a that's a great question, and uh, it's something that to this you know to this day that is the most important uh, question that that we ask our team here at my firm. It's the most important question that I ask myself, uh, and it's something that we discuss uh, at Infinitum. In fact, with with Ral, Ral and I talk a lot about. Um, how to size things, how to think about uh, sizing them, because, uh, again, you need to be able to, uh, you know, maintain the courage of your convictions um, for an extended period of time uh, and, you know, not be particularly dogmatic with that view. Yeah. You need to be open to thinking about how you could be wrong or how that view might change. And um, and I think that's kind of how you, how you hone uh, how you hone your skills and look. As I sit here today, you know we've been uh, we've had we've had nine months of of uh, capital controls really um, really affecting the manner in which we invest and all of these all of these kind of you know, when you think about the the global macro continuum uh, of time. Uh, the last eight years are really unlike any other, given the activity of global central banks. Absolutely. And um, you've had economic gravity pulling one way and central bank gravi- gravity pulling the other. And um, you've had to choose uh, between the two to, to be really good at, at, uh, at what you're doing. And so it's, it is a constant challenge thinking about sizing things, uh, given the time horizons that we're facing.
1: Yeah, it's 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 so tricky. I mean, this this we could you and I could sit to witness forever but I I I'm, I'm going to have to move us on because we need to uh, we yes. need to jump into this mailbag because as I said we we put a call out and we had over 200 people email us with questions for you. Uh and I'm going to make about 190 enemies now by picking just 10 that we have time for. Or so so let's jump in. I'm going to wrap a few into one here because it, you touched on your China thesis, which obviously everyone has been paying attention to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we have a, a, a question from a guy called George, a question from a guy called Ian, another one, I only have an email, uh, hearty, I'm afraid. So I'm going to wrap all these into one. And, and what essentially they're saying is which one or two factors might make you change your view about China? What reforms could they make? What What changes could they make? That might make you reconsider. And what do you think the vulnerability is? Is it is it the is it the banks? Is it insurance or the real estate developers?
0: Yeah. um, So at at this point in time, uh, when you've grown a credit system as recklessly and quickly as they have, and you know, in fact, the IMF in their Article Four review just just uh, referred to the China's credit growth as dangerous. Um, So whether you call it dangerous or reckless or, or both. Um, at this point in time, uh, the the Titanic has already hit the iceberg. And so it's just a question of of how fast it's taking on water and when it's going to sink. So when I think about what would change my mind uh, is just their ability to delay. So when I think about the delay that's gone on since last November, think about the three enormous capital controls that they've put on. Number one. Number one is they restricted um, global, um, call it international companies that do business in China, whether it's Visa or Qualcomm or GM or Ford or Daimler or you, you name it. Uh, those companies that do business in China have had uh, access denied for their profits and or working capital uh, to be pulled out of China. So that's one thing they've done. The second thing they've done, as we all know, is when you look at cross-border M&A, So if you look at outside of the official sector of China, so outside of policy-driven acquisition by the government, so the government's buying a a port in Brazil, Mm -hmm. which they just announced, or they're buying a port in Greece, or they're buying a copper mine in Uganda, that is, again, it's playing the long game like China likes to do as a government. Those acquisitions will continue to be made by the government, but what I refer to is kind of the the one ton uh, large acquisitions by the acquisitive companies like h insurance and ping on and uh Dailon Wanda, you know, buying English soccer teams yeah. and buying um, movie production companies and doing all the things that they were doing um, from, from East to West. Uh, that has been completely turned off uh, as we all know. And then the individual level scrutiny, That the that SAFE and the PBOC have engaged in actually just began two days ago, uh, where now any overseas cash withdrawal or expenditure that exceeds one thousand RMB is now to be reported to SAFE once a week by the banks in a data file. Can you imagine how big? Yes, one hundred fifty dollars. So imagine how big that data file is going to be weekly. And again, it's just the, the irony, or let's just say the, the irony of the whole situation is, is really it's laughable because here you have an economy that wants so desperately to be uh, taken seriously as they so uh, 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 arduously pursued uh, inclusion into the IMF special drawing rights basket. And yet here we have an economy, that is supposedly a global reserve currency or an aspiring global reserve currency where there are severe capital controls imposed. And again, it's kind of a joke. They want their cake and they want to eat it too. Yeah. They want to be able to shut off the capital account. Oh, but by the way, it's freely usable and we are an international reserve currency. Well, which one are you? Because you're not both, right? right. And it's, so. Yeah. It's, it's really silly what, what goes on and, and how people that just invest so desperately want to believe. Uh, and they want to believe in the Chinese government. They want to believe in this kind of more than a billion people buying things and, and wielding their economic sword and mili- and actually, actually their military sword all over the world now. And, and truthfully, it's built on a house of, uh, on a house uh, as a house of cards or it's built on a foundation of sand. And all of those things, when you ask me how I how I might change my ideology or how I might uh, view ourselves as kind of wrong, well, I use China's own statistics uh, when I'm building my case. And um, the big question is, how long can they hang on? Uh, and they've had their capital account closed since November 2016. And so um, the answer is, could they extend it another couple of years? So I, I think I would agree that there may be a way for the government to hang on yeah. for, for for a couple of years, and that may um, you know prove to be more difficult to invest around. And that's something that I concede um, to the the government of China. But when you think about this, when you have forty trillion dollars worth of assets, you have to grow your M two at ten percent, and you have to grow your GDP at six and a half, seven and a half percent. You have a lot of balls in the air. Yes, you do. If you drop, if you drop one of those balls, the whole thing falls apart.
1: Well, yeah, you know, and again, that brings us back once again to sizing, right? You, you see this coming. You can see it can possibly be extended, so you have to get the sizing right. Yeah, this 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 idea about the impossible trinity, which anyone in finance knows, you, know, you can't have free capital flows, fixed exchange rate, and sovereign monetary yeah, policy. You know, you that's pick right. Pick it too. But is it more fool us for giving them? The, the latitude to believe that hey maybe these guys can pull it off because I think we know they can't or is this just to your point wishful thinking on the part of investors who don't want to hear the bad stuff?
0: Yeah, I mean as we know you know you look at you look at Liaoning and the, and the problems with the province of Liaoning where they where they have admitted China has admitted uh, that that the province of Liaoning has has overstated its reported GDP by upwards of twenty percent. <laughs> over the last four years, 20% in four years. And now you also have Hebei. You have you have a number of these other—you uh, have Inner Mongolia. You have all of these other provinces that also are very similar in their construct uh, and very similar in their electro- electricity consumption. And yet—I yeah, don't know if you saw this. So, you know, you have the provincial GDPs that all, all of course, aggregate into a yes, national GDP— and so they just said the GDP deflator is negative 21 percent so that real GDP never changed. Right. I mean, it's like it, it for people to invest in China and to invest around things that they know are being made up, I think, is a real legal problem. Because as a fiduciary, if you invest there and you end up losing, if I were a plaintiff's lawyer, I could beat you 10 times out of 10 in court for being uh, negligent and making your investment. So I think there are all kinds of interesting ideas that, that one should have. Uh, if, you're, if you're acting as a fiduciary and investing in China, you better be very careful.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, people the perspective on this thing, you talk about Liaoning, people don't realize it's, there's like almost 50 million people in that province. So they kind of think, oh, it's just some little province in China, you know, fine. They may be fudging the numbers a bit. It's 50 million people. It's a little bit smaller. It is than the, UK. the, it is
0: the ru- it's the rust belt of China that represents half of China's GDP. Right. This is not this is not some some one off. but This is a very 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 big problem.
1: Oh boy! We'll, well, we'll stick with them. I'm going to jump in a few more of these. Otherwise, I am just going to make every every question I don't ask is a new person who's going to beat me up on my Twitter feed. So um, let's change tactic a little bit. You knew this was coming. I had so many questions about Bitcoin, and, and I've tried to pick what I th- I think personally Bitcoiners please don't hate me is is the most interesting opinion to get from you, and that is that's this. Um, uh, and the question, I don't have the name it's from, so there's another person who's going to hate me, but if you're out there listening, I apologize. Um, yeah. How should we think of Bitcoin? Should we think of it as equity-like, or should we think of it as a currency, or, or do you think of it in some other way?
0: So, all right. I've spent a lot of time on this, um, at least forming my opinion here. Um, there, there, there are a number, of, a number of answers that I must give you on Bitcoin. First of all, I'm going to admit to you something where I made a big mistake, um, early on, I was I was dismissive of digital assets and or Bitcoin specifically Bitcoin yeah. in its infancy, uh, and it's something that that you and Raul uh, really uh, were on top of you know three four years ago uh, back uh, again in its infancy, and my my kind of naive view at the time. After after only spending a few hours on it, so I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't did not dig like I should have. Uh, so that was a big mistake on my part. Uh, but uh, early on, I I decided that it, there was nothing underpinning. Right, there was no global controlling navy. There was no yeah. um, enormous economy behind Bitcoin, and therefore to be to be taken as a as a true uh, you know currency, you, you really would need. Uh, those kinds of enormous assets underpinning uh, a hegemonic currency. And yet, in this case, um, I thought that the barriers to entry for Bitcoin were negligible and that anyone could come up, any mathematician could come up with a new algorithm or a new uh, manner in which to handle the blockchain uh, and therefore come up with a new currency, as we're seeing today with all of the ICOs. Um, I thought there were no barriers to entry and therefore I had no idea how to value such an asset. Um, And that was naive of me because when you, when you understand the math, you know, there's the blockchain, there's Bitcoin, and then there's everything else. Um, I think that, so my conclusion is that the digital, it's a digital asset, Mm -hmm. right? It's a digital asset class. And when I think about digital asset classes in general, um, I think it's here to stay now. I don't know which ones are going to win and lose between Ethereum and Ripple and Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and all these all these different uh, machinations of digital assets or initial coin offerings. Uh, there's a digital gold rush going on. And it's, it's mostly speculators speculating with their personal capital. And, and the reason I say so is to this day, there is no institutional custodial framework uh, for a digital asset. There is no insurable custodial relationship that satisfies securities rules uh, for, for let's say, the pension fund universe, the endowment universe, and the hedge fund universe to, to custody those assets. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I see it today is, um, I guess, what's total value of all digital assets today, Grant? It's like 110, 100 110, 100, 100, yeah. yep. $110 billion. So when I think about the asset class, when I think about gold, there's been about $7 trillion worth of gold ever mined in world history, and there's about $2 trillion of what, what we deem to be investable gold. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about Global M2, right? Global M2 is somewhere around, I don't know, $75, $80 trillion. And when I think about uh, digital assets, today they're about $110 billion. If they are going to be a viable asset class, which I do believe they will be, um, uh, what is that asset class to be worth? And m- my answer is, I bet it'll be worth more than a trillion, but I also bet that there's going to be one big step function change in valuation, and then it will be fairly stable thereafter. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you have to be there in the move. Now, I don't know which who the winners and losers going to be. My answer is Bitcoin is likely to be the the base the the core and it, and it will win. Um, so I guess that's that's my long long form answer of saying I think Bitcoin will be one of the primary winners, but I also think that there is going to be an enormous amount of fraud. There's going to be an enormous amount of of, of an, an enormous number of losers and I think there're going to be a lot of zeros in the ICO space. Yeah. And so in the digital asset in the digital kind of gold rush I think there are going to be some 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 crying uh, terrible stories, yeah. uh, and, and I know there will be. Uh, and so I think people need to be really careful in buying the the crazy I, ICO of the day. Uh, but I think until Bitcoin gets an institutional custodial relationship um, figured out, or until somebody does, um, this is only going to be. Individuals now it could be very wealthy individuals speculating with tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars, but you're not going to see institutional capital come into there until uh, you get a bona fide um, framework in place. And, that, and I and I think people are working on it, but it's it's going to take some time.
1: I'm just going to hunker down with my Paris Hilton Bitcoin, and because I think that's probably going to be the one that's going to win. Um,
0: Does she have one? She,
1: yesterday, apparently. So Paris Hilton, Floyd, money Mayweather. He says that you can now call him Floyd Crypto Mayweather, and uh, the rap of the game. I think they've all got their own coins as of yesterday. So uh, you better start with, awesome. start the due diligence process. Um, okay, changing uh, changing tax a little bit here. I thought this was a great question. Uh, you know, I know you you love to spearfish. Um, mm-hmm this question uh, from Laura really, really caught my eye. What, what have you learned from other disciplines or from world-class performers? You know, I know some of the guys that you hang around with are world-class performers in their field. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from these people that have in turn informed or improved how you approach investing?
0: Hmm. Um, that's a, That's actually a really, that's a great question. You know, I had an employee uh, and a dear friend of mine that lost his life that, uh, at, at, in a car accident. And he had a, um, this is, this is another long answer, but he had a quote taped to his computer that is now, I took off of his computer and, and is on mine. Uh, and, he, and he wrote, I go to work every day with people smarter than me who are better at what they do than me. I go to a gym every day and work out with people stronger and faster than me. I spend my spare time with friends and family whose values and quality of character I aspire to reflect. For all of these reasons, I get a little better every day. And when I surround myself with people that are fantastic spear fishermen or great investors, um, it, it only makes me better at what I do. And it's, it's why I decided to have you know, the summits out at the ranch where, that you've been to where we have you know, 90 of the world's top CIOs. And it's invitation only. And, and uh, selfishly, it's people that I wanted to be around and people that I thought very highly of. And um, I, I have a I have a circle of kind of the world's top performers as friends, and um, it only makes me better at what I do. So I think that the question's a good one uh, because it's it's really how I've 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 kind of uh, designed my life because I always come in to work, and when I talk to people that are experts in their particular vocation, uh, or in their particular kind of vertical of the market, whether they whether they study Chinese capital flows better than, better than I do or more, uh, uh, more vigorously than I do, you know, it just teaches me how to do it better. And, and I think that a self-improvement is, is the only way to keep moving forward. Um, and I, I always tend to try to have a sense of humility. I, we definitely don't think we know it all. Hell, we barely probably know half the story. Uh, but I'd like to know as much of half the story as I can. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and and uh, I meet people all the time that I deem to be so much uh, more intelligent and so much better at what they do than I do. It just it pushes me to to be better, I, and yeah, make myself better.
1: I I, I couldn't agree. With you. I've I've said this so many times in this along this real vision journey. People ask me about it, and I said, you know, the, the the best part of of doing these interviews and traveling around the world, sitting with all these smart people, is getting to spend time and, and pick the brains of them So said the worst part is being the dumbest guy in every conversation you have but to yeah. your point that's that's such a huge advantage is to be that dumb guy because no one's learning anything from me but I'm taking so much out of this it's it's just it's fantastic and and if you're in a position to be able to to spend time with those people uh, I agree you just seek seek as many of them out as you can and you you know the interesting thing carl has been um and you've been a fantastic example of this is how how willing people are to give of their time when, when people come to them and ask for help or ask them intelligent questions, it's, it's remarkable. You know, human beings as a species, we are predisposed to help people if and when we can. And, yeah. and, and, if that, if that help comes in the form of the sharing of information, it, it's remarkable how, how, how gracious people are with the time. Agreed. All right, let's, I'm going to try and squeeze one more question in, uh, which is, uh, let me find there's There's one here that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, oh, here we go. This is, uh, it, as we've gone through the last couple of months, we've seen Jungle drums beating and a a lot of increasingly high-profile guys, you know, the Paul Singers of the world, the the Julian Robertsons of the world, start talking about being really worried and just saying, you need to understand we are fragile right now. No one's saying the world's going to end, but they're all saying pay attention because things are getting a little bit dangerous in terms of risk-reward positioning. Is there any particular... Uh, crash signal that, that you're watching for, or anything that that you found to be a very reliable indicator that that you've got kind of front and center on your Bloomberg screen that you're paying careful attention to.
0: You know, I mean, the answer is, of course. You know, we we, we pay attention to to you know just global equity markets, global rates, uh, and currencies for that matter, uh, and you know cross rates of various stresses. And I don't know what is going to set off. A, a decline or or let's say a higher vol environment mm-hmm. uh, than we're in right now. I just think that the people that you just mentioned um, that are that are um, seasoned, um, multi generational investors. Uh, we all know that European high yields should not trade inside of the U.S. tenures. Right. Right. We know that EM vol shouldn't be inside of NASDAQ vol. Uh, we. We all know that realized vol trading, you know, with a with a single digit handle is too low. Uh, we know all of these things uh, uh, that that can't persist uh, for for a long period of time have got to change. And I don't know what's going to change them uh, now. I, you know, it's amazing to me that you've got you know Kim Jong Un and, and doing what he's doing. And the press calling him rational for doing so. <laughs> that it's it's that the apathy for for President Trump has led the led the press to um, go and in, go into their own twilight zone in uh, calling someone that shoots their uncle with an anti aircraft gun yes. rational, uh, and 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 calling our president the one who's being irrational. Who, when you think about what's going on with the situation, there's one thing that President Trump's done right, and he's been very deliberate and very slow in his reactions to North Korea. Um, And and if you really take a look back at how the market is pricing in a zero chance of anything going wrong, I think the market's pricing is off. Uh, And so all of these things uh, lead me to believe that it's a period of time when you think about economic dislocations that have happened in the past. They, they also have coincided with some conflict. And I think when you look at the world's great conflicts, they've all been driven by economics in one way or another. Every
1: time. Every time.
0: Every time. And so when I think about what I'm telling you is happening in China, we've had a 1,000% growth in a credit system, and we're now at a bubble of epic proportions of Chinese credit. And all of that's happening at a time in which uh, you're seeing more tension in the South China Sea extreme tensions on the Korean Peninsula, you're, you're seeing the globe's haves and have-nots fighting at, 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 fighting at such a level that, that I've never seen in my mm-hmm. lifetime, all at a time in which markets are at their all, all-time highs. So everything seems to be bubbling uh, to the top uh, and maybe even reaching a boiling point almost concurrently. And so uh, I just it, it seems to me like risk is completely mispriced uh, today. Uh, and that uh, when I when I think about what to follow, you know, there are individual situations that I follow in both China and Hong Kong and Europe and the U.S., uh, where there are indicators that would tell me immediately if there was stress uh, hitting the system. And you're starting to see some of those indicators really, really again boil, mm-hmm. uh, but you haven't seen anything break yet. And truthfully, what we think is given the enormity of algorithmic trading of active versus passive, uh, or passive, uh, I guess, dominating over active. And um, the CTAs that all believe that they can you know, reduce 100% of, of market value uh, within one day's time, we're, we're kind of back to 1987 on steroids from, yeah. my, from a portfolio insurance perspective. So it's our view that if the markets, call it the, the S&P, uh, is, is to be able to crack 4 or 5%, we think it'll immediately crack down 15%, right? I think that once the buy-the-dip mentality gets run over once uh, and everybody moves into, call it, you know, VAR starts expanding, VOL starts expanding, and they get they get tapped on the shoulder and have to close positions, uh, we believe that that's going to cause uh, kind of a, a, I don't know what to call it, a flash crash, but maybe just a vapor lock uh, of a sell-off. and uh, But... It, it's going to require the sell-off to beget the sell-off, and I don't know what's going to cause the first four or five percent down. Yeah,
1: I, 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 I that's exactly how I see this thing playing out, and, and then it comes mm. down to who blinks first. Do the central banks blink? Because if they don't, if they say, you know, what? We, you're on your own this time, guys, uh, that's when I think you get the next twenty percent. Because if, if that if that backstop is taken away, uh-huh. I don't know. I, I don't know where we go from there. I, I think it's uh, it's chaos.
0: But we'll I see. agree. The, the hurdle The hurdle to go to call it QE five, yeah. uh, or or beyond, uh, is is definitely a lot higher than it's ever been. And and with rates still plotting along zero, um, I think the central bankers. You know, if I was Fisher, I'd resign too. Uh, yeah, I think right. the cent- I think the central bankers are kind of backed into a corner on what they can do going forward when we have our next recession, and it's inevitable that we'll have our next recession. Won't be the end of the world. But the central bankers are going to have uh, uh, many fewer arrows in their quiver to deal with any kind of problems that we may, f- that we may be facing. Yeah, I think you're right.
1: Now, I forgot to name check. Uh, now, the person who's sitting there question, it's, it's either a ship or a person, but it's S.S. Patrick, so I'm not, I'm not sure which. Let's, let's assume it's a person. Now, but, now before we uh, finish this part, the, the one thing I do want to do is, is to get a question from you uh, to ask our guest host next week, which is a, a, a good friend of both of ours, and that's
0: Hugh Hendry. So have
1: you got a question that we can ask you from you?
0: <laughs> I love Hugh Hendry, and um, I love his his ability to think originally. Again, not not being contrarian for contrarian's sake, uh, and he'll he'll also go with the crowd too. You know, my my question for him is is one I would ask myself, and it, and, and it is it is the following: how how do you maintain positioning um, for extended periods of time? Uh, when uh, when the market deems you to be wrong, and you're just waiting uh, to be vindicated, you know how how do you hang on, uh, and and how do you explain it to someone like Grant and myself without uh, giving us uh, you know. Um, uh, a language we don't really understand, which I, which I guess Scottish. How do you, how do you, <laughs> how do you speak English when you respond to a question like that? I'd really love to know.
1: Great, such a great question for Scott. Uh, okay, well, look, let's let's jump into the last thing I want to do. This is just a, a, a bit of fun to finish with it, and um, I, I'm going to I'm going to send you up to Mars. I'm going to stick you on Elon's rocket, and I'm going to send you up uh, to be one of the first guys up on Mars, and I'm going to allow you to take five things with you. And this is a, a blatant ripoff of the the long running British radio show, Desert Island Discs. Um, but it's such a fun thing to do with people. So what I'm going to give you is, is one book, one CD, uh, one movie on DVD, a piece of technology uh, and a quote. And, may, and maybe we've already had the quote from you earlier in earlier in the, in the podcast, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I am going to let somebody needle point it for you and frame it. So you can take that with you. So I would love it. So let's, so let's, let's, uh, let's do the book first. One book. What's the book you going to take with you?
0: So, uh, one thing that, that I uh, haven't ever disclosed in, in our conversations is the one thing I collect uh, in life is first edition books, uh, and particularly of economic history, but also of um, also of scientific and mathematical history. That that, that that is my passion. So for you to put a proverbial gun to my head, a metaphorical gun <laughs> to my head, and ask me to choose one is like, you know, asking which which of my five children is my favorite child, you know, I don't have. Five no, you children, can take
1: all but... the kids. You can take all the kids. Guys, yeah. Just one book.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so the book, the book, and and maybe there's an availability, availability heuristic secure, but I think this will stand the test of time. You know, um, Graham Allison, the founding dean of Harvard's Kennedy School, has just written a book entitled "Destined for War," and the beauty of this book. Uh, and it, it has been um, the, this concept has been discussed literally since the since the since since the beginning of time. And it's this idea of a Thucydian trap. Mm-hmm. Thucydides uh, was a, an Athenian general, and it, it's basically this concept of rising power threatening ruling powers. And this is a beautiful historical look back of the sixteen times in which rising powers threaten ruling powers in world history. Uh, and it is such an education in in what went into the thought processes of the participants in these 16 cases and why uh, today's uh, conflict or, or kind of frenemy situation between the U.S. and China could devolve very quickly into more of a conflict. And uh, Graham has taken... Uh, you know, he's advised every single president since Ronald Reagan on grand strategy and uh, defense, and is is a well decorated uh, global grand strate- grand strategic thinker. And this book, I've read it once, and I'm halfway through it again. It is one of the best books I've ever written, and again, or read. Uh, and it's um, yeah, it's worth it's worth reading.
1: So that's so that's destined for war by Graham Allison, yes. right? That's right. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned this to me a couple of weeks ago when we chatted briefly and I, I downloaded it onto my, uh, my iPad. I haven't read it yet, but now I'm going to start as soon as I hang up the phone from you. All right, yeah. so that's the book. So uh, this was my tough one, the, the CD. You can take one, one album up there with you. What, what's that going to be? This, this would cause me all kinds of pain.
0: Yeah, it would cause me all kinds of pain too. But I, but I actually have one that's kind of uh, the highest probability one. That uh, it's it's just the best of George Strait. You know the the godfather of country music. George Strait is one of my absolute favorite uh, artists, and um, the the best of George Strait would 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 be what I'd take on that three year ride to <laughs> Mars.
1: Now now being a Texan is is that are you saying that because you have to? I just want to I just want oh, to check. No no no. I,
0: I, <laughs> look, I love all genres of music Co- country is one of my favorites, but you know, uh, I'll tell you my, my, my number two uh, runner up there was, uh, was clearly like the best of Bob Marley. You know, I love, ah, I love, I love Bob Marley. So anyway, those, those, those two are the two I would take, but if, if all I could have was one, it'd, it'd be, uh, it'd be George Strait.
1: All right. George Strait. It is now, uh, that brings us on to a movie and you know, we guys, we do like to make a list of movies, um, but I am going to make you pick just one.
0: Okay, so I'll tell you it was it was a contest between three, uh, and the three were Inception, Top Gun, and Tombstone. I see what you uh, did there.
1: I see what you did but, there.
0: <laughs> but but I would but I but I would uh, Tombstone's definitely my my favorite movie. You know, it's it's Val Kilmer's best work. Yep. And it's about a beautiful but unlikely friendship between a lawman and an outlaw and uh, all the trials and tribulations of life that go on between them. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. I,
1: I haven't seen that since it came out, was it like 86, 87, I guess, somewhere somewhere around there, it must have been.
0: That's correct.
1: Yeah, I'll have to dig that one up again. Uh, okay, a piece of technology now.
0: That one's easy. Hey, if you're sending me to Mars and I only have one piece of technology, I want a satellite phone.
1: <laughs> An interstellar satellite phone.
0: Interstellar. Well, uh, one would assume you could reach satellites from Mars too, I guess. But that's, 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 that's I guess that's that's a that's a that's a leap. And uh, you know, my first question was, uh, in in response, is now d- will the technology work on Mars? Right?
1: Well, briefly, like it all does.
0: Yeah, right. right. So I, I I carry a satellite phone with me everywhere I go in my briefcase, and uh, I would just like to take it along.
1: All right. Okay. Well, I, I can't send an IT uh, specialist with you. So, it, yeah, if it breaks, you're on your own. You might need to do a little bit of or take a. Maybe your book should be Satellite Phones for Dummies or something, just in case it uh, <laughs> just in case it breaks. And, and lastly, I, 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 as I say, maybe maybe there's another quote, but I'm, I'm going to give you that needlepoint quote anyway. Are you going to stick to the one you picked earlier?
0: Yeah, I'm going to stick to West Swank's quote uh, because it's uh, it's kind of a, a it kind of perfectly embodies uh, the way that we think here.
1: Yeah, it's say uh, it's 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 not a famous quote, but uh, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this. Well, Carl, I guess uh, that really kind of. Makes us run out of time, I'm afraid. There was, uh, there was a bunch of other stuff I wanted to do. As I said, I've got, I have hundreds of people now out there typing furiously on their Twitter keyboards who are going to give me a lot of grief for not asking you their question. So uh, I apologize to those. But I, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for giving up so much of your time and so much of yourself to, to sit and chat with me because this has just been, just been a real treat for me. You know, we've, we've done no. this a few times before. And every time, I, to your point earlier on, I just take so much out of it. So you know, sincerely, thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, and uh, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to uh, to doing it again with you. And uh, maybe maybe we'll interview some of these people I talked about, uh, which will be a lot of fun. That will be a lot of fun, and
1: and I will pass on your your both your regards and your question to Hugh. And once I get an interpreter, I'll give you his answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, take. Care. All right, I'll
1: take it. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, there you go. An hour in the company of Kyle Bass and having the chance to, to talk to him about the things we talked about and get a sense of what makes him tick is uh, is something you really just don't get the chance to do too often. And every time I'm lucky enough to sit and talk to Kyle, I walk away with a similar feeling. So that's it for, for this episode. We'll be back next week with another co-host. And how do you top Kyle Bass? Well, next week, as you've already no doubt heard, we will be joined by none other than Hugh Hendry. Uh, Hugh and I have a little bit of history, actually. He was on Real Vision recently comparing me to the Black Knight from Monty Python. So I dare say that's one of the subjects that will get raised. Uh, Also, we'll be asking him Carl's questions, you've heard there. And perhaps more importantly, we want to ask Hugh some of your questions too. So visit our Twitter page, at Real Vision, and there you will find a pinned tweet with everything you need to submit a question for Hugh Hendry. Now, all that leaves me to do, as per usual, is give you our disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and as always, trade responsibly. If you have an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you hear on Adventures in Finance, please do send it to us uh, at podcast at realvision.com. And please don't forget to get your questions in For Hugh Hendry via our Twitter page At Real Vision If you enjoyed what you heard Then do subscribe to us on iTunes And I'm going to do it Leave us a review I still have no idea what that means But people say it's a damn good thing So why the hell not ask for it To keep up to date with the latest interviews Research publications And of course podcast episodes Then please do follow us on Twitter At Real Vision You'll find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn If you just search for Real Vision And you can follow me on Twitter At TTMYGH
0: And you can follow me at AIFJames.
1: That was James the producer. So please, run out, stop everything that you're doing, and follow him immediately. Apparently Twitter's a thing. First one of you to follow him will be follower number one. (laughs) That's it from us. We will see you back here next week with Hugh Hendry.